I'm curious, why is it so important to discover new antibiotics? People get bacterial infections, and then they take antibiotics to treat these infections. But bacteria evolve way faster than humans do. And so just putting it simply, they can see these drugs and learn how to fight them and learn how to beat them. And then they survive. And so then after, you know, one year, five years, 10 years, the treatments that we use no longer work. And so we need to find new treatments. Cody Goff from Curiosity.com. Today we're going to learn about antibiotics research. Every week we explore what we don't know because curiosity makes you smarter. This is the Curiosity Podcast. The word research kind of has a stigma around it. You might think of a white, sterile, boring laboratory with a bunch of microscopes and petri dishes. So that's why I wanted to talk to a scientist who goes out on adventures, Indiana Jones style, for his research. And that's exactly what I did. Dr. Brian Murphy will talk about how his research in the field of antibiotics has taken him all across the U.S. and around the world, and why his research is so important. We'll get into some surprising science, plus learn how you can get involved as a citizen researcher. Dr. Brian Murphy is an associate professor at University of Illinois at Chicago in the Department of Medical Chemistry and Pharmacognosy. Not pharmacology. Correct. What is pharmacognosy? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated word that basically means knowledge of drugs. If you break it down as, you know, pharma, cog, nosy. So cog, nosy, like knowledge, and pharma, drug. Got it. Yeah, okay. So knowledge of drugs. Well, welcome to the Curiosity Podcast. Thank you. I'm talking to you today because you run a drug discovery research program. You're working on lots of projects, but there are some that seem very pressing and even more important perhaps than others. So what problem right now is the main problem that you're trying to solve and why is it important? Yeah, great question. Um, We're trying to tackle the problem of antibiotic resistance. So people get bacterial infections and then they take antibiotics to treat these infections. But bacteria evolve way faster than humans do. And so you know, they can, just putting it simply, they can see these drugs and learn how to fight them and learn how to beat them. Um, and then they survive. And so then after, you know, one year, five years, 10 years, the treatments that we use are no longer work. And so we need to find new treatments. And this is where my lab comes in. The whole point of my lab is to discover new antibiotics from the environment, but specifically from bacteria that we collect in the environment. Now, bacteria everywhere. Uh, You can look on your skin, on the table right here. You can go under the water into little sediment samples or sand. There's bacteria everywhere. And back in the 1929 or 28 or so, Alexander Fleming discovered that uh, there was this fungus that fought off a bacterium by producing a little, a little small molecule, a compound called penicillin. And, and this was a huge discovery because it really ushered in what was called the golden antibiotic discovery era. And it, it ushered in the concept that microorganisms fight each other with little chemical weapons, all right? And so what, what researchers did at that time, they invested billions of dollars each year to try and collect these chemical weapons that microorganisms use against each other and develop them into drugs. So when I get a bacterial infection, you basically, like nature has been fighting each other for, you know, bacteria and nature have fought each other for you know, millions of years. And so we're just harnessing that power, right, when we develop drugs from microorganisms. And so I kind of go around to different parts of the environment, particularly under the water, 
Um, we'll scuba dive for different samples in some weird environments to try to collect strange bacteria. And we'll collect the bacteria that live there, and then we make a whole library of these bacteria, and then we try to collect the chemical weapons that they produce and test their ability to inhibit different diseases. And that's kind of that's what we do. And hopefully we find chemical weapons that can target these drug-resistant bacteria. That is a great overview. Thank you. Let's kind of go into each of the parts of what you were talking about. Let's start with in the early 20th century, mm-hmm. penicillin is discovered. Why is it so important that you're doing that now? Don't people come out with new antibiotics all the time? No. Uh, They don't. They used to. There's a certain defined reservoir in nature for antibiotics. And throughout the 40s to 60s, um, 1940s to 1960s, companies were pulling out antibiotics left and right. That's why they called it the golden era of antibiotic discovery. Uh, and, And most people thought that, you know, bacterial infections weren't going to be so much of a problem. But of course, because bacteria become resistant to these drugs, it became ever everly increasingly difficult to discover new drugs to treat these drug resistant bacteria. And so over the years the rate of resistance to drugs outpaced the discovery of new drugs. And so there's not, you know, there's not an infinite reservoir of drugs from the environment. So, you know, a major problem in my field right now is rediscovering the old same old antibiotics that have existed in nature for a long time. Hey, Ashley here. Calling the first half of the 20th century the golden age of antibiotics is no overstatement. Before Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin in 1928, hospitals were full of people with blood poisoning they had contracted from minor cuts and scrapes. You couldn't effectively treat infections like pneumonia or gonorrhea. You just had to wait it out. From 1942, when the first patient was treated with penicillin, through the 1970s, 270 infection-fighting drugs were developed. That's an average of 10 a year of new antibiotics alone, which is a really impressive statistic when you consider that today the FDA approves about 30 drugs a year total. How quickly are these bacteria adapting and how quickly are these antibiotics becoming obsolete? It it really differs for every strain of bacteria, pathogenic bacteria. there are some that can become resistant very quickly. I think with uh, with some of the first antibiotics on the market, they 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 observed resistance strains within a year, and then there are some that was it was more like ten years. And so, it, it, but it all depends on you know you always hear you always hear people talk about the overuse of antibiotics, and this is one of the things that propagates resistance when you don't properly use an antibiotic to kill an entire population. You kind of expose it to the antibiotic, but sublethal concentrations, it, it can become resistant. It can learn about that antibiotic and, and then learn is probably the wrong word to use, but um, adapt. It, it, can, it, it, can, it can adapt to it. And So are antibiotics being overprescribed or just taken in, in too much in general? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're being overprescribed and um, people, doctors are prescribing them when they don't need to prescribe them. Uh, and this is a problem. And, and a major problem is their use in agriculture. Um, where just swaths are being used on on whole animal populations, uh, animal populations. Uh, yeah, yeah, like the like uh, you know pigs or cows or um, so to prevent the their crops from getting diseases. Pop quiz: What percentage of the antibiotics administered in the U.S. go to animals? Care to take a guess? It's seventy percent. 
When you add that to the numbers in other countries, it's pretty clear that animals worldwide are getting way more antibiotics than people are. Sometimes this is necessary. Animals get infections just like people do, and to withhold medication would be bad for a farmer's bottom line, not to mention their conscience. But many farmers dish up regular servings of antibiotics to help animals grow faster, and that can lead to antibiotic-resistant infections. Considering that two-thirds of human infectious diseases start in animals, that's a very bad thing. Some countries are working to combat this problem, but change has been pretty slow. So who isn't using antibiotics? I don't know. (laughs) Oh, man. It's a major problem. Their use in agriculture or overuse in agriculture. Is that why you're going underwater to find them? Yeah. Well, that's why people went into the water in the first place. Yeah. I mean, the, the first places they looked were the land. These were the easiest places to collect. You know, you get sam- you get a soil sample from, you know, your backyard or down the street or you go on vacation, you bring a tube uh, and collect some soil and isolate bacteria. And then, you know, after a decade or two, you start to see the same structures. And so you have to, you have to innovate. Okay. Well, let's try some new methods, new methods of growing or new places to collect. And, well, I guess this leads us right to one of the major problems that my lab is trying to solve right now. And in, in, in nearly like seven to eight decades of biomedical research in trying to discover new antibiotics, there have been relatively few changes to the philosophy that we use to collect bacteria and thus their corresponding chemical weapons from the environment. And we're kind of still using the same old techniques that we used in the 40s and 50s. You go to a different place, you collect some soil, you put the soil onto petri dishes, which is basically food for bacteria, and then bacteria grow. And then you look at the plate and you have all these different colors on your nutrient plate and you say, oh, well, here's a purple bacterium and here's a black bacterium and here's an orange bacterium. Geez, I'll, I guess I'll pick one of each and then I'll ignore the other seven orange bacteria. Um, but really... Using color and shape is is what people still do nowadays, uh, and and that tells you nothing about the chemical weapons that they produce, which is obviously the important part. So, if there's forty bacteria on a petri dish, hmm. research researchers will literally randomly pick a handful of them. This is correct. Are you serious? Yeah, that's the best we got. Um, because now, not to say that we don't have ways to identify the bacteria, but the ways that we have to identify them are time consuming and costly, and so. When you, you know, when you take a sediment sample and put it onto maybe six different nutrient media, okay, that's a manageable number of bacteria. You can have anywhere from 20 to 100 different types of bacteria growing on these plates. But when you start to say, okay, now you have six plates per sample, but then you go on a collection trip and you collect 60 samples, and now you have 60 times six, and then that number times uh, 100. And now all of a sudden you're, start to, you're starting to be around like 50,000, 60,000 colonies that you need to pick. And I'm running an academic research. Lab. I don't have a ton of money. Nobody, you know, nobody, it's really difficult to get money here. And so I got to pay people to do all this. And so you just have to, you have to hedge your bets and just pick some of them and hope that what you picked produces a new drug. And um, it's been serendipity really. It's, it's collection based on serendipity. 
during the golden era of antibiotics research and discovery, did they do things differently? Were they able to collect 60,000 and test all of them? Or has it been pretty much the same? It's been pretty much the same. I mean, pharma uh, pharma companies had a bit more money so they could build bigger teams and slightly bigger libraries. Um, but they, they still there was still not a, a whole lot of documentation about exactly what was tested. Okay. Um, so... You know, we have luckily we have developed a method in our lab now, in collaboration with um, another assistant professor at UIC, Dr. Lara Sanchez, um, who's an expert in mass spectrometry. It's basically this this tool that we can use to analyze that both the type of bacteria and what it produces on a plate, and we're we're able to analyze high numbers of these bacterial colonies um, very quickly and get a get a very brief fingerprint of not only what type of bacteria it is, but what it produces. And, and, and we can then make informed decisions about what bacteria we should add to our library. So instead of basing these decisions on color and shape, we can base it on what type of bacteria it is and what it produces, like the weapons it produces. That makes sense. Yeah. Let's leave the lab just for a minute. We'll come back there. But let's talk about the scuba diving. You are going on adventures. You're like the Indiana Jones of microbiology, right? Is it microbiology? Yeah, microbiology, chemistry, yeah. Chemistry, a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. What's your background is more chemistry? I'm a trained chemist. Um, most most of my degrees are in chemistry, but I, uh, I in my postdoctoral training, I did two years of heavy um, chemistry slash microbiology research. And so the microbiology part was really half self-taught and half trained with um, really talented microbiologists at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography. Okay. There's going to be some overlap, I suppose, Yeah, in, in depending on the research. So back to the scuba diving. <laughs> so you're going underwater having these adventures. When I think science, a lot of times people think science or research. It's always you're in a lab with a bunch of beakers somewhere. Everything's white, countertops and everything. But you're out and about in the world and you're traveling and things like that. Where has where this project brought you? Yeah, this project in the continental U.S. It has brought me all throughout the Great Lakes uh, to Massachusetts, to the coast off of Maine, to Florida, um, and internationally, it's brought me to some amazing places. Um, we've done collection expeditions in Iceland, uh, where where you have like literally below freezing waters, uh, and we've just gotten a, a five-year grant to work and develop an antibiotic discovery program that focuses on tuberculosis in Vietnam. Uh, so I'll be going there for the next five years. Um, yeah, we, we've been able to see some amazing things uh, in these kind of, and we're and partnering with scientists who work in these countries because, like I said before, this is an international problem that knows no borders. Is this an international effort? Yes, it is. Absolutely. So you're getting help from all over the place. Oh, yeah. In our collaboration with Iceland, you know, we have a partnership with um, Dr. Cecilia Omar-Satir's lab at the University of Iceland. Uh, and in Vietnam, we're working with... Um, uh, Quang Van Pham at the uh, in Hanoi at the Vietnam Academy of Science and Technology, and the another professor in the National Institute of Hygiene, Hygiene and Epidemiology in Hanoi. And it's important to gather samples from all around the world because of the variety of bacteria you'll find. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we both have the same goal. For example, in um, in Vietnam, you know, they have expertise in TB biology. I have expertise in sample collection and the identification 
of drugs from bacteria. And so we can combine these different expertise and build a nice training program to train young scientists in this process and uh, pass some of this knowledge on so then they can further innovate the discovery process. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the grant we have going with, with Vietnam right now. Well, when you're on these expeditions, are you doing the old school kind of collection? I mean, is it just you drive somewhere, scrape up some soil and put it in a dish? I have this amazing picture of uh, we... <laughs> I, we, we got on the one of the largest vessels in the Icelandic Coast Guard fleet. It's called the Ayer, and there's this great picture that um, this this photo photojournalist uh, Jenny Yang of the Toronto Star took. It's the the captain, and this vessel is immense, right? You look at it and you say, "I, I do not belong here," and you have this great picture of me and uh, Cecilia. Uh, the my collaborator and the the captain rolls this large map of the North Atlantic out in front of us and says, "Hey, you guys have the ship for six days. All right, where do you want to go?" And you know, you, you, you just the the picture is perfect because it uh, this is a dumbfounded look on my face, saying, "Um," because the truth is, we don't you don't know where to go. Nobody knows where to go except let's just go somewhere different. Uh, and, you know, that's, that touches on one of the other projects in my lab about how do you intuitively choose where to collect? Because nobody understands how these chemical weapons are distributed in nature. And if you don't understand that, then you don't really know where to collect. The best philosophy that we have is that different organisms produce slightly different chemical weapons and so just collect different organisms. Now, if organisms have been fighting each other here on Earth for thousands and thousands of years, I have to ask... A curiosity audience loves outer space. Our editorial staff loves outer space. Are you working with space agencies to collect from outer space? Can I tell you, you know, every time I go under the water, I feel like I'm in outer space. <laughs> uh, especially in Iceland, it looks like outer space. So I would, I would tell you that I'm already collecting them, but that's not true. Um, <laughs> you know, they, when you find a microorganism from outer space, that is going to be a big deal because you've just proven life exists elsewhere. So um, no, we, we there's not a huge. Uh, our field is called natural products. There's not a huge natural products contingency focused on space. But I will tell you that, not three years ago, I told my nephew that when he grows of age, he can be the first guy to go into space to start collecting samples to look for new microorganisms to use to fight bacteria. Wow, very ambitious. I he, like it. He really likes the stars. He likes looking into telescopes. So uh, I had to give him a project. Good. <laughs> I mean, if you got to give somebody a project, I suppose that's a good place to start. <laughs> if there's no scientific method for locating where to even start digging, can people get involved? Are there citizen scientists that can collect this kind oh, of yeah. stuff? Oh, yeah. You know, there, there's, there's, a, there's a, quite a few um, scientists in my field who have pretty large citizen science efforts that uh, have them mail in samples. It's a bit more complicated because there's some permitting issues. Um, you can't just do it, and, and for good reason, you can't just have these things come in all around the world. Uh, you, you know, somebody can't, like, live on a farm in, uh, you know, in India and send a soil sample in because that, the USDA is going to have a major problem with that. Yeah, Customs doesn't like that. Customs does not like when you bring in soil from other farms. You should not do that. I'm not advocating for that. Uh, but, yeah, but it's a lot easier to do local citizen science efforts. And there are – there's even a website. Um, I, I don't – I forgot what the name of it was. But there is a website that can direct citizens toward citizen science projects. And it's just a whole database of, of different researchers who are looking for help. For our listeners in the U.S., one of those citizen scientist sites is called Drugs from Dirt. 
We'll have a link to that and lots of other great resources in the show notes. We actually have a citizen science project in our lab. First of all, did you know that there are uh, sponges in the Great Lakes? Little sponges, these little animals. No. Uh, of course. No, not many people do. I didn't either when I took the job. Um, I thought that sponges only occurred in the ocean. But yeah. they occur in lakes. Ha. Huh. Wow. <laughs> and so I, I thought, and it was even better, that the most, a lot of these sponges grow off of wood, which means off of old shipwrecks. And so we had a, a pretty great citizen science effort of where we put the word out to a bunch of paddy scuba diving centers around the Great Lakes and said we sent them sample collection kits. We got all of the appropriate permits to collect from these places. Uh, and they went out, these citizens, they took videos, they documented the sponges and where they were. They got us the depth, the water temperature, the exact coordinates. They took a little tiny centimeter cubed piece of a sponge. They put it in a tube under the water. They got up and dropped it in an envelope and mailed it to us. And as a result, we have a project where right now we're working with greater than 50 sponge samples collected from the Great Lakes, not only studying what types of sponges exist in the Great Lakes, but we're studying the types of microbial communities that live in these sponges, how consistent the communities are throughout different sponges, and the different chemistry that occurs within these sponges. And I know people are probably thinking, well, who cares? But you have to care because if you understand how microbial communities change over the course of geographic location, then you can understand how to more intuitively design a collection trip so that you're not going to have that picture of me staring dumbfounded at a map on a ship. I might actually have a better answer when that captain asks me, where would you like to collect? So if we can understand how microbial communities and the chemical weapons they produce are distributed in the environment, we can intuitively design collection trips. That seems like a pretty important thing to do. It is. It's, and, and I'll tell you, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a question that just my lab can answer. It's going to take a concerted effort of many scientists. But there are other labs out there who are, who are kind of working on the same issue. There aren't many, but there are. So let's say a bunch of citizen scientists send you some samples and you've collected a bunch of samples, but you already said you don't have the capacity to analyze all of them. Good question. Nice lead-in, too. Nice transition. Uh, we, we do now. Um, we In the past year and a half, we have, through, through two very talented graduate students and one very talented collaborator, uh, Dr. Sanchez, um, we have designed a method that we can go through these colonies, these microbial colonies, in high throughput, so in large numbers, and make a quick evaluation of whether or not we are interested in them as sources for drug discovery. Uh, so whereas before, there's no way we would have been able to process 10,000 colonies. But now, using a lot less money, fewer personnel, uh, and a more automated system, we can actually process that many colonies and go through that many while reducing the redundancy that usually exists in our libraries. You know, repeats of types of microbes. We might, if you just say the orange color, you might collect 200 orange colors and you have no idea which of those bacteria are similar or which produce the same micro, uh, chemical weapons. Uh, but now we will have an idea of where the overlap exists and we can throw out all the redundancy and only keep the, um, the unique microorganisms. 
So you've you've solved the part of the problem, really? Yeah, I hate the word solve because it, it, it you know it, it suggests that there is there is there is an end to it. There there is always a way to improve what you're doing. We I think we've introduced a nice innovation to this uh, the front end of this drug discovery process, which has been severely lacking in innovations. What kinds of conditions are you testing to be able to combat? You mean to combat drug resistance? Um, or what diseases are you fighting or okay. what? Yeah, what, what are you trying to develop these antibiotics for? Yeah, so we collaborate heavily with the Institute for Tuberculosis Research at UIC. So tuberculosis is a pretty awful disease that affects one in three of the world's population. Um, it's a bacterium called mycobacterium tuberculosis or TB. If you're in a developed country, you may be saying, wait, tuberculosis? Isn't that an old-fashioned disease like scarlet fever or smallpox? In your part of the world, yes, mostly. Each year in the U.S., for example, there are only about three cases per 100,000 people. But worldwide, it infects around 10 million people per year and kills 2 million. The greatest number of TB deaths occur in Africa, mostly because Africa is experiencing a terrible HIV epidemic, and TB is one of the main killers of people with HIV. Suffice it to say, finding drugs that can wipe out tuberculosis is super important. And so this is one of our major targets, but we will not uh, discriminate. We will, we will fight any pathogenic bacteria that exists out there. So whenever we do isolate an antibiotic, we will test it against as many different human pathogens as we possibly can. And we have other projects, too, where we focus on um, trying to combat different cancers. And uh, we have a lot of different uh, what's called biological assays that our collaborators do. But I think our major focus is antibiotic discovery. And that's the most urgent, again, because you said that not a lot of new antibiotics have come out in the last several decades. Not a lot is putting it mildly. We haven't seen a new class of antibiotics since 1984. Only five of the top 50 pharma companies are even creating antibiotics. A 2002 analysis found that out of more than 500 drugs in development that year, only five were antibiotics. 89 drugs hit the market that year without an antibiotic among them. And part of that's funding, I guess. Yeah. Oh, boy, there's a lot of reasons for it. You know, part of it is funding uh, a lot. uh, There's been a huge divestment of pharmaceutical companies from antibiotic discovery because it's just simply not that profitable. Um, and I mean, I hate saying that, but it's it's absolutely true. And, you know, you have, it can take billions of dollars to develop a drug and then you can develop the drug, put it through, you know, go through discovery and then you can put it through phase one, phase two, phase three human clinical trials. You can put it on the market and then within a very short period, a bacterium can be resistant to it. So, what company would invest in that? So I think we need a severe change in the way that we invest in discovery. And and this is just my personal opinion that we there has to, at least for antibiotic discovery, there has to be a huge percentage of um, the for-profit motive to be removed. But we need a major restructuring of our system to do that. And there are there are there are not-for-profit discovery institutes, um, especially that focus on. Uh, third world, more third world diseases like tuberculosis. So um, th- these these places do exist, but uh, not for every disease. Is there a way people can locate those and donate to those or support those in some way? To some of the major ones that that do more not for profit discovery are the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the TB Alliance, uh, and then there's several others. 
and we'll post some links in the show notes if people want to get involved. Well, the research you're doing sounds like it's really useful and and a cool thing to do. And you get to get outside the lab. You're not just sitting hunched over numbers all day and crunching in little microscopes and doing lots of different things. For our younger listeners or students that are trying to choose a career path or are interested in this kind of research, what do you what do you want them to know that you think they might not know? Well, it depends about if it's know about our field or know about like how to apply to a program like this. Either way. Okay. Well, to apply to a program like this, you know, you want to you want to have a strong background in um things like biology and chemistry. Uh so a lot of people are afraid of organic chemistry. The name just the name is just terrifying to some people, but I I promise you if if you sit and read the book and really take your time to study it, it is a very intuitive subject. Um, I was bad at a lot of subjects. I wasn't bad at that uh, but because I thought it was intuitive. It, it really – it set – the first three chapters of the book set out rules. And once you learn those rules, everything builds off of those rules. But if you, you know, do like what I did in a lot of other classes and accidentally like drink through the whole course <laughs> – <laughs> uh, you're going to miss the rules. And then, of course, you're not going to understand chapter four because you didn't study hard on chapters one to three. So it's one of those subjects that if you get lost at the beginning, it's, it's tough to recover. So please uh, study your organic chemistry and study your biology because uh, I was never an A student. I was never the smartest kid in the class. Uh, but I, I really studied hard when it came to organic chemistry and and it paid off. And so be good in those biological sciences, develop a relationship with your professors, get good recommendation letters, and then when you apply to graduate schools, type in, um, type in things like drug discovery natural products into Google or drug discovery synthetic chemistry into Google, and, they, and you'll, you'll have a whole slew of grad programs all across the country. What's the coolest thing that you do that people might not know that you do? I mean, you already touched on it. By far, the coolest thing that I get to do is go explore the underwater environments of places like Iceland and Vietnam. And you know, you go to Iceland, and there, there were there's places where I can literally swim between the fissure or the crack between continents. And there, there are points where I can put my left hand out and put my right hand out, and I can be touching both continental shelves at the same time. You know, that place where the Eurasian plate meets the North American plate. Um, you know, you, I can be underwater in this sub-freezing environment where it's negative 0.5 Celsius or 31 Fahrenheit and you're in this dry suit and it's totally freezing water. But then you see this th- hydrothermal chimney that's built up of minerals that's tens of thousands of years old that's just spewing boiling water out of it um, from, you know, glacial melt that enters into the earth is heated by the volcanic rock and then shoots out of these chimneys. And they're just such strange places that I have the, the, the absolute privilege to see. Uh, and, and for that, it's, it's, it, everything that I do is worth it just to, just to see those. I'm sold on it. <laughs> Might go check out one of those textbooks <laughs> yeah. and make sure that I pay attention during the first three chapters. Mm. Where can people learn more about your research online? Oh, www.murphylabuic.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter also at murphylabuic. And uh, 
you know, we're always promoting things that we do and talking about other people's science as well. Because it's not just us here, you know. We're, we are a splinter in the rung of an ever-growing ladder of drug discovery. And so I really want to highlight our place as, as you know, significant contributions from very insignificant um, uh, not not people, but in you know we're we're a very small group, and and that's you know that's that's kind of how drug discovery works. Is you build off of you stand on the shoulders of giants. Forgive the common um, forgive the common idiom, but you stand on the shoulders of giants, and then you also stand on the shoulders of people who are the exact same stature as you. <laughs> sure. And so it's, it's it's just a big group international effort, and all of our contributions together aim toward this greater cause of discovering. Um, cures to diseases that are going to plague us. And what happens if you and a lab in Thailand and a lab in Iceland cross-reference all your research and compare your notes and end up coming up with some antibiotic and you realize, oh my gosh, this can fight cancer or something like that? What happens then? Do you bring it to market? Does it become released just to everybody? Like, how yeah, does that work? Then it gets really complicated after that if, oh, you're, yeah? if, you're, if you find something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you we have these agreements in place where you know usually when we when we work internationally we have these like 50-50 type agreements say all right we will go into this 50-50 benefit benefit sharing um you know it's it's really unfortunate the degree to which profit comes into drug discovery um unfortunately the way that our discovery system is set up it is it's totally it has to happen because it costs an incredible amount of money and takes an incredible labor force to put a drug on the market. We can't, you can't just discover something and throw it into the human body and ignore all of the possible consequences that come after that because there's a lot of toxicity issues with, you know, with the drugs that you discover. And when you put something into a living system, these living systems are incredibly complex and you can't even predict the ways that this thing is going to act in different subpopulations of, uh, of of humans. And so it takes just a lot of research and a lot of money to develop a drug. So somebody has to do it. And, and as much as I have, as much as I have, you know, had a lot of criticisms of pharma companies over the years, they do amazing work. Um, and they, and they operate a lot of times at a loss. So, uh, I never thought I'd be one day behind a microphone, you know, defending pharma companies because they have their share of offenses. I promise you, uh, but it's it's a it's it's not as simple as people usually put it. Um, you know, like oh, there's a cure out there, but you know, companies are just hiding it because they want to make more money. And and I there that is so BS. It is it is so intellectually hollow, and there's n- literally no thought put behind that and no evidence to support that. Uh, you know, that the fact that some company has this cure to cancer that, you know, that, that we can't even keep, we can't even keep the simplest of secrets be, be among human beings. So the fact that, you know, one company has this, this cure to cancer that they're not releasing, that's crazy. Yale neurology professor Stephen Novella has a good argument against this idea. He says, quote, Often those who claim that they are hiding a cure for cancer have only a vague notion of who they are. They generally have an image of the medical establishment as monolithic, but nothing could be further from the truth. The medical establishment is composed of universities, professional organizations, journals, regulatory agencies, researchers, funding agencies, and countless individuals, all with differing incentives and perspectives. The idea that they would all be in on a massive conspiracy to hide perhaps the greatest cure known to mankind is beyond absurd, unquote. 
And you're not paid by pharma companies. To I am say not. All this. I, I am not. I have no conflicts of interest here. I am just a. a I am just a silly little citizen, just like everybody else. Uh, I am. No, there's no conflicts of interest. I don't make any money from this stuff. Uh, so no. I think you, you deserve a little more credit than that. You're not just a silly <laughs> little citizen. You're doing some pretty important stuff. Oh, uh, you know, we, hey, that's uh, it's. We're we're on a ride here. Like the the late great comedian Bill Hicks said, "This is all just a ride." Sure is. It's a pretty fast and furious one, too. Mm -hmm. Well, you taught me so many things, and I appreciate that. And I would like to maybe teach you something. Now, in our little bit, that we, I always say little bit. It's just a bit. Little bit. <laughs> Any Rick and Morty fans out there? I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> so many. All right, we're going to do our one of our little bits <laughs> called the Curiosity Challenge. And I'm going to ask you a question, and maybe you'll know it, maybe you won't, but I thought this was appropriate given you spend a lot of time underwater. So you spend a lot of time with fish. Here's your question. Why doesn't lightning always kill fish? I have no idea. It's a great question. And, and if, I may, if I may preface that, oh, no, no, if I may add, add something to that, I am a chemist and a microbiologist and I, you know, people ask me questions about fish all the time, and I have the same answer. I say, "How the hell should I know? I'm not a marine <laughs> biologist." And you know, we'll be under the water, and my student will come up and say, "Hey, Brian, did you see that thing? Yeah, what was that?" And I'm like, "I don't. I'll tell you about molecules. I have no, so uh, please enlighten me. This is great." Well, there, there's really two major reasons. The first one is basically that lightning doesn't strike the ocean that much; it, it just strikes land a lot more. You were going to say something? Well, I have a guess, but I just I just well, go for, go for the no. Guess. I, I just assume that when you know it, it, when lightning hits the water, it's just the water's a poor conductor of electricity, and it, or or it does not. It's not going to your lightning isn't going to spread down and and electrify every single being in the ocean. Otherwise, they'd, everybody would be dead. So you're half right. Water is actually a good conductor. I mean, a good conductor. <laughs> well, then you were right. Well, metal is a good water, and rather. so it's. <laughs> Yes, like metal, water is a good conductor, so it encourages the electrical current to travel over its surface rather than delve underneath, the same way a Faraday cage protects its contents from harmful shocks. Kids, so, stay in school. <laughs> pay attention to chapters one through three. Except I drank through most of my biology courses. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so if a fish surfaces at the wrong moment, like maybe a dolphin or whale or something, then it can definitely get hit and shocked, but luckily most fish spend the majority of their time underwater. People don't, however. That's why you're supposed to get out of the swimming pool when it's about to thunderstorm. You can read more about that on Curiosity.com or on the Curiosity app. And we'll also have links in the show notes, as always. And now it's your turn to ask me about something, yet something else that I may not know. I am a, uh, it, it, I do a lot of political writing and um and and social justice writing and so uh, you know ever, ever since I made Chicago my home about seven years ago, I've been absolutely fascinated with its long storied and tragic history and and uh, here is my question: so what is the major factor that drove this high degree of racial segregation we see in neighborhoods in Chicago following the Great Migration of African Americans escaping Jim Crow in the South? Oh, where did the segregation come from? Where's one of the major factors? There is a myth out there that, that that people just simply like to live with people that look like them. And this is a major myth that must be destroyed because this is not the case. 
So why are our neighborhoods so segregated? What is one of the major factors? I will say one of the primary factors, and this is whenever I talk about politics with my dad, he always just circles around and says, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> so I'm going to say that it has something to do with with the money involved. Maybe real estate rates were higher or lower in certain areas. I'll give you, I will give you the same answer, uh, the same uh, 50%, I'll say. You, you, you hit it when you said real estate. Ah. And so there, there is, it was, it was made, it was mostly a dual housing market. Obviously, and, you know, spoiler alert, driven by racist policies, um, there was systemic oppression from both government and private sector to prevent African Americans from being homeowners over the course of several decades in Chicago. Uh, and there's these policies called like redlining. Um, and preventing blacks to moving into white neighborhoods to which and you you can look at all of the these huge race riots a lot of them were centered around housing and so you you had strict government policies that prevented african americans from moving into specific neighborhoods and ended up corralling people into these ghettos and there's a lot of different awesome resources like um arnold hirsch's making the second ghetto um um, family Properties by Beryl Satter, and uh, a lot of different research by ta Coates, like the Case for Reparations and a few other different resources that, that really document these policies in detail. But it's tragically and it's fascinating. And, uh, you know, it, it's, been, it's been a hobby of mine to learn uh, or to educate myself about these issues. And so there's and I still have a ton to learn. But, you know, we are silence is complicity. They say, and I have seen your Twitter feed. And if people are interested in following you, you often talk about issues like this in a more of a contemporary context. So they can follow you on Twitter at um, Rights of Murph with a W R. Rights of Murph. W R I. Yeah. T E S. Then. Yeah, it's a little clever little pun off of uh, Thomas Paine's Rights of Man. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And I, I should give you more credit for your answer because you, you said real estate and economics, which, of course, you know, he, I think your dad's probably right. Economics is everything. And, uh, and uh, yeah, as a combination of factors that, uh, that, that really did lead to, you know, poverty in some of these neighborhoods. And it was just a combination of both, you know, housing policies or educational discrepancies, uh, correctional, like policing and judicial discrepancies, that all led to basically breaking down and and the terrorism of the family unit um, for a lot of racial and ethnic minorities that prevented the accumulation of wealth over the years in Chicago. And and if I look back to my grandfather, you know, you, I'm I'm Italian and Irish, so you know, no, everybody hated the Irish when they came here. And you ask any Irishman and they'll say, you know, well, you know, my ancestors came here and they had it really tough. Well, yeah, they absolutely did. And that is true. And they were spit on and nobody wanted to work with them and they've had to fight for their own. But, um, you know, when they had kids, their kids were able to escape their ethnicity um, because they looked like other people. And, the, you know, African-Americans weren't necessarily able to uh, able to escape their, you know, their color. That is one thing that, that has always been there. And so they have always been discriminated against. And uh, yeah, anyways, yeah, I didn't mean to get dark at the end there. Sorry. History is not always pretty. No. It's, it's, it's really often not pretty <laughs> at all. There's some really terrible things about history. But, yeah. but fortunately, we can look at it and learn from it. And I learned something. So great curiosity challenge. 
And again, uh, if people want to find you online, they can go to murphylabuic.com. murphylabuic.com. Thank you again so much for joining me, Dr. Murphy. Absolutely I really appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. It. Thanks for having me on. Of course. I've got an extra credit question for you, courtesy of the Curiosity app. Dr. Murphy talked about traveling around the world, so this week I've got a travel-related question for you. Why are most airplanes white? And I mean, what's the main scientific reason, putting economics aside? The answer, after this. I hope you love this podcast as much as I do. I've got one quick request. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes. Well, actually, I have two requests. If you're listening to this in your car, then please pull over and park before leaving us a five-star review, okay? It's the fastest, safest way to support the work that we do and the best way to leave us feedback. If you have a specific idea for our show, then you can also send an email to podcast at curiosity.com. I promise I read every message, so keep the ideas coming. I will now reward your podcast listening patience with today's extra credit answer. So what's the main scientific reason for snow white planes? Thermal science. The color white best reflects sunlight, which keeps the cabin of the craft cool, kind of like how long white clothing is your best bet in the desert. And shielding the plane's plastic parts and composite materials from the sun is especially important. White paint also lets potentially dangerous solar radiation bounce right off. So you can think of white paint as a kind of airplane sunblock. There are a few other reasons why airplanes are white, but to learn more about that, you can take a look on the Curiosity app or on Curiosity.com. Before I sign off, I want to thank Ashley Hamer for her always helpful expertise and fast facts, and I want to thank you for listening. Extra special thanks and 10 shroot bucks if you've told your friends about our show. I wonder how many people will get that reference. For the Curiosity Podcast, I'm Cody Goff. Cody Goff.